Well, good morning. Glad you guys are joining us this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, we are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, you go to Matthew 13. We're going to get there in just a minute. Before we do, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, an announcement about um, a thing as our youth ministry is kind of going under a little bit of a reboot. And so starting tomorrow night, uh, our youth ministry is going to begin to meet at the gate, which is right across the street from the high school, from 6 to 7 p.m., junior high and high school. So if you know or you are a junior high or high school student, we'd love for you to join us starting tomorrow night. They'll be meeting every Monday. Um, if you're joining us online, you can always email us or you can write on a Connect card if you need more information. If you're in the room, uh, Linda is one of our youth sponsors. Linda, are you around here? Linda's over here in the corner. Later on, if you can't see her, she's going to be on the piano. You can harass her later, and uh, she'll have all kinds of answers for you about what's going on. They're also doing a thing in Camp Tadmore in a couple weeks, a lot of great things that are, that are coming forward. So, so here's my question for you. I want to ask you, uh, are, are you a morning person? Anybody, raise your hand. Be bold. Morning people, you are aggressive, and the rest of us hate you. Um, Morning people, right? Okay, morning people. How many of you are not morning people? How many people are night people? Like, uh, uh, what do they call it? Owl, night owls, right? Night owls. How many of you just wish you could sleep all the time? Okay, that's me. That's me, right? Here's the thing. I'm not naturally a morning person, but here's what, I, what I've realized about getting up in the morning. It makes all the difference what you're getting up for, Right? If, if I have to get up really early in the morning because I'm going to play golf with some buddies and I've got an early morning tea time to be the first one out there as soon as the sun is breaking forth and, and, and I got to get up super early, that alarm clock goes off and I'm like hopping out of bed. I'm in the kitchen, brewing a pot of coffee, drinking a nice cold cup of water right to start. The, I'm ready and excited. If for some like weird universe we lived in, I had like a dentist appointment at 5 a.m. and that alarm clock went off. It would be like rolling a mummy out of a tomb, just death coming out of that bed, right? It makes all the difference when you get up in the morning, uh, what you're getting up for. The, the, here's the deal. The reason behind your discomfort in anything in life, whether it's getting up in the morning, it's your diet, it's exercising, it's homework, it's work, the reason for your discomfort makes all the difference in how you respond to the discomfort. So we're going to look at Matthew 13 today. Matthew 13. And Matthew 13 is going to give us an invitation to how the reason behind our discomfort. So if, you, if you're in Matthew 13, we're going to look at three verses that contain two parables. Now, if you've been here before, uh, we've been talking the last couple weeks through the chapter of Matthew 13. There's a lot of parables, and a parable is a linguistic tool that is simply, it's a simple story with a single point, okay? It's a simple story with a single point. We have two parables in three sentences, in three verses, okay? And so we're going to look at them. So, so here they are. Here we go. Matthew 13, verse 44. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, 
He went and sold everything that he had and bought that one, bought it. Two parables, one point. And I think the point's pretty simple and pretty obvious, right? Um, I'm going to ask you in a moment, if you're online, I'm going to ask you right now, if you're joining us online, is write in the comment box, if you think you know what the point of this parable is, and here, I'm going to tell you, you're in the room here as well, I'm going to tell you this, it's not a trick question. These parables, these these three verses are so simple, I think. Jesus is so clear about the point of what he's trying to tell us in the parable that if you're joining us online, just be bold and take a chance and write that what you think Jesus, if there's one, if it's a simple story with a single point, what do you think Jesus is trying to tell us? Now now that we've given our online family a a minute to try and give an answer, I want to see if there's someone in this room, anybody that would be bold enough to take a venture on what you think the point of these two parables are. It's pretty simple. It's not a trick, it, just, just so you know before you answer, I'm not like in 20 minutes going to be like, ha ha, see, Timmy's an idiot, right? Okay, I think it's pretty simple. Someone t- take a guess. There you go. Oh, nailed it, right? The value of the things of God, the value of heaven, that heaven is worth things, that it's value. It's, it's that simple, right? That's what the parable's about. They, he says it's kingdom of heaven is... Like a treasure in a field, you find it, you sell everything just so you can have that treasure. Kingdom of heaven is like a one pearl. Look at this. The guy sells every other pearl he has for that one pearl. As one commentator pointed out, he said the problem, the, the guy who bought the treasure in the field, bought the field and got the treasure, he could parse out the treasure and he could like sell it piece by piece. The one guy, the pearl, the pearl is so important that he sells everything so he can have the one. The only way he can have that one is to never part with that single thing. It's not for a financial gain transaction. It's so valuable. He wants that one thing. Now, now, I I think the parable is pretty simple. I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Today, because of that, I want to focus on one phrase that happens in verse 44. Because I think this one phrase summarizes the uniqueness of the Christian faith. This one phrase explains the difference between the Christian faith and every other philosophy or religion in the world. It, It comes in verse 44. It says this right here, right here. You ready? Watch this magic. Bam! See how I did that? You want to see it again? Bam! Isn't that awesome? I'm going to convince my kids I have power in my fingers to make yellow lines show up. We could, oh, oh, wrong direction. We could do this all day. Anyways. Okay, here it is right here. (laughs) I don't know why they let me up on the stage with a microphone. Um... Uh, again, from the joy over, right there, right there. This phrase I want to talk about today, because I think this one phrase right there sets apart the uniqueness of the Christian faith, summarizes what is so different about what Jesus is inviting us to. He, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. I know some of you really like taking notes. And uh, if you get easily distracted, you can write this down right now. And then for the next 20 minutes, when you get distracted and don't pay attention, you can come back and say, no, I listen. Cause see, I know what your sermon was about. Okay. Cause I'm gonna give it away right now. At the very beginning, I'm gonna give you what this whole thing is about. It's right here. You ready? Joy, not duty, produces God-honoring obedience. Joy, not duty, produces God-honoring obedience. Now, now here's the deal, okay? 
I know, you might not be shocked. Well, we're going to talk about joy, right? Joy of the Lord. Like joy, isn't, isn't that like a fruit of the Spirit? Like, yeah, joy. Like that your joy might be complete. Like Jesus talks about. It might not be shocking, but here, I want to look at two stories in Scripture. And, and see, I have a suspicion that for many of us, we intellectually understand that joy should be a part of our life. Uh, but when we approach God and we approach our faith and we approach Scripture, we don't approach it that way. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I heard one pastor say, he said, um, uh, if the joy of the Lord has filled you, some of you need to tell your face. Uh, anyways, um, here you go. Here's the first story, right? The rich young ruler. It's what we call it. It's a story about a rich young ruler. Now, this guy is wealthy and young, and he, so he has the financial capacity to venture all around trying to find the purpose and meaning of life, right? He, he, he doesn't not search because he's wealthy. In fact, his wealth gives him the opportunity to spend his life trying to understand meaning and purpose. And he comes to Jesus in Mark 10. He comes to Jesus, and he says this, good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? Now, if you've been here, we've talked about this, eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This is all synonymous in Jewish thinking in the way that Jesus taught. What must I do to inherit the kingdom, the eternal life? It's all the same. And then look at what Jesus says. He says this in verse 21 of Mark 10. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now this story right here, like it comes later in Matthew as well, and Matthew's telling about Jesus' life. Uh, this story right here, I think this is the lived out opposite reaction of the first parable we just read. The guy's searching for treasure. He comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit the kingdom? What, what do I need to do to get this treasure that I, that I want to be in the field? And, 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 and the one guy sells everything and he gets it and he goes away. This guy, it says later, it says that he walked away sad because he was wealthy. Now, Jesus says this interesting thing. He says it right here. One thing you lack, Okay. What did this man lack that the man in the field didn't? From the joy of it. I mean, look, look, back, look back at what this guy says. Look at even what his question says. What shall I do? That's duty. That's, that's jobs. What do, what do I need to earn? How do I need to earn eternal life? His, his view of what he sees of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is filtered through the lens of duty and doing and earning. The other guy, you remember, it says, from the joy of it, in celebration, in gratitude, in, in, in love for the thing itself, he sells everything so that he can get it. One when a way sad and one sold everything from the joy of it. One looked through the lens of duty, what must I do? And the other through the lens of joy, for the joy of it. Another passage. I love this one. You are probably familiar with it. It's Exodus 20. You may not know you're familiar with it. But Exodus 20 contains what we call the Ten Commandments. 
One of the questions that I've gotten asked plenty of times and pastors often get asked is, like when you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of rejoicing about the law of God, right? There's a lot of celebration. They say things like this, that the law of God, the commands of God are, are more precious than gold. And, and, they, and they're, like, they're like fresh, sweet honey on your lips, right? And there's this kind of question of like, why are the people, the Jewish people, rejoicing rules so much? Have you ever gone to work? Have you ever gone to work and like had a manager come in and they're like, hey, glad you guys are here. Today, I want to let you know we're going to institute more bureaucracy and more rules for you. And you're like, yes, I'm so glad to work in this place consumed with rules that control my life. No, <laughs> nobody does. Nobody does. But there seems this weird thing in the Old Testament where they're rejoicing and celebrating the law of God for them. And the, the question itself, I think, exposes so many of our complete misunderstanding of what God's doing in the Old Testament. Completely understands that there is an absolute abject disconnect in our understanding of what God is doing compared to those people who first read the words of God, who first heard the oral law of God, who, who first experienced the story and the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we can see it in Exodus 20, right? We call Exodus 20 the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at it in a second, but we call Exodus 20 the Ten Commandments. Here's the thing. If you're, if you're following along and you go to it, you can look through. It actually doesn't anywhere call itself the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at it in a second. Verse 1 doesn't say, and then the Lord came with the Ten Commandments. You might, as you're looking at it, there might be a heading right there. It, it might say the Ten Commandments, but I, just so you know, just the way like editors put the Bible together, those headings and even the verse and chapter markings are all added by the editors right? Um, the original text didn't have any of those things. They put them in there because to help us who are so unfamiliar with the, with the scriptures. But it, if you were to go to Jesus and ask Jesus, if you were to get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years and ask Jesus about the Ten Commandments, now Jesus is God. He knows everything. So he would aptly know that you were an idiot. And so he would know that. But he, he would, he's, Jesus never calls him Ten Commandments. The, the, the disciples never call them the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes who knew the Bible in and out, they actually never call it the Ten Commandments. They call it this instead. They call it the Ten Words. The Ten Words. A word as in like, like oh, oh, that was a good word, right? It's like not a singular word, but as a statement. So sometimes people translate it as the Ten statements. And that might not sound profound to you, but it changes the whole way we understand what God is doing in Exodus 20. You see, Exodus 20 is the foundational statements to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, what it means to be a nation and what it means to be God's people. And when we come at it through the lens of the Ten Commandments, it changes the way we read them, and even, we're going to talk about a second, the way we structure them. But when we come at it with the ten words or the ten statements, it changes everything. Uh, another pastor told me once, when I first was going to take this job here at this church, he said, know your story. Know the story of how this church was birthed because it will change the character and, and, and the personality of the church forever. 
Uh, sociologists will say the same thing about ethnic groups or, or nations or people groups, that knowing your story changes the personality of, of that people group, of that ethnicity, of that nation. Here's a perfect example. Um, the difference between America and Canada, right? Besides the fact that America's better and they talk weird in Canada, which are true, Okay. Think about the difference of American Canada. They're personality-wise, they're drastically different nations, yet geographically so close to one another. Why is that? Because think about how America was birthed. We're birthed on rebellion. We are birthed on casting off the tyrants. We are birthed off of independence and, and autonomy. We are birthed out of these things. And, and, and our foundational documents are things like the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights right? And these words, independence and rights, have shaped the character of this nation. Now, Canada, do you know how Canada became a country? Canada became a country because England got their parliament together, and they had a vote, and they decided that Canada should be its own country. We as Americans threw off the evil of the tyrant and demanded our own independence and and Canada was called into their parents' room and their parents sat down and said, we think it's time for you to get your own apartment, right? That changes the personality of a nation. These are the foundational documents. This is the foundational story of what it means to be the nation of Israel, to be the people of God, to be, as Israel literally means, to be the nation of the people who wrestle with God. It changes it. And we read it through the lens of the 10 rules of what it means to be the people of God, but the Jewish people didn't. So, so let's look. Let's look. First three verses of Exodus 20. Well, apparently I was going to show you that verse. Here we go. Exodus 20. It says this. First three verses. This isn't all of the 10 commandments. This is just first three verses of the passage it comes from. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then it goes on. So, so let me ask you this. Through the lens of the Ten Commandments, when you're asking, when you're, when you're structuring these as the Ten Commandments, which we've done for most of Christendom, um, if you do some scholarly work in reading about Exodus, even in, in scholarly Christendom stuff, a lot of times they'll call this the Decalogue, which is a carryover from Jewish thought, because Decalogue is Latin, literally for 10 words. Deca means 10 and log means word. So they, they still, in scholarly work, told us the Decalogue, right? So, so, so when you look at this, what is the first commandment? A anybody bold enough to say what verse the first commandment comes in? You're not going to be wrong. It's pretty obvious. There we go. Three. Look at that. Look at that. The first commandment right here, you shall have, that's the first commandment. Can we all agree? Everybody head nod for me. If you're online, head nod. You'll be alone, but it's okay. We love you anyways, uh, right? Uh, it's the first commandment. These are, in, in the way we read it, when we come at it, the way we do so often, when we read the 10 commandments, we read this as a prologue, just setting up the really important stuff of the 10 rules that are to follow. In fact, if you have the Ten Commandments around your house um, or on something or on a decoration or something like that, they probably look something like this, right? The Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And then they kind of list through all the other commandments. But when you approach Exodus 20 as the Ten Words and not the Ten Commandments, it changes everything. L look at this, look at this. Let's, let's look back, okay? 
What is the first word that God speaks? It's, it's right here. In fact, the, the Talmud, the Talmud, which is, is, is kind of like the Jewish book of life on how to live and how to interpret Scripture and, and, and a bunch of um, answers to a bunch of questions that Scripture didn't answer sufficiently at the time is what they felt. And so Talmud, the Talmud structures the 10 words differently than we do. We start the 10 commandments right here in verse three. The Talmud actually says the first word of God comes right here in verse two. The first statement of God, the first truth of God, the foundational truth. At one point in the Talmud, it says that the first word of God shapes and transforms everything of what it means to be the people of God. Think about as you read through the Old Testament, even Jesus' day, as they would talk about what it meant to be the people of God, this is what they came back to all the time. I am the Lord your God. This is who you are. You see, before this, they'd been a tribe, they'd been a family. They, they, in, uh, before the Exodus, they were the Hebrew people. But in this moment, God is teaching them. He's defining for them what it means to be the people of God. And the first thing he says to them is, what does it mean to be us? It means that I'm your God and I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery. The most important truth of what it means to be the people of God in, in, in Jewish thought and in ours, if I can say so, is that we were the people who were in bondage that God has set free. This reading changes everything. This changes everything about what God is wanting to do in us. In the Psalms, if you read in the book of the Psalms, you'll occasionally come across a word you, you may not um, be familiar with and you may just skip over. You may not even notice it anymore as you read through the Psalms, but there's this word that pops up every once in a while, Selah, and, and, and it's actually an untranslated Hebrew word because we don't, we don't know for sure what it means. So we just stop translating. We just put the word there. But the, the kind of general consensus, the best decision, it always comes out of context, which is one of the reasons we don't know for sure, is that it means something like, like pause. It means something like just breathe for a moment. You know, even as you read through the Psalms, there's a temptation just to read and read and read and go from one point and one verse and one statement and one thought to the next. But occasionally the writer wants you just to stop and to breathe and to think and to allow this magnificently beautiful truth the, the author of the Psalms is trying to communicate just to pour over your body and throughout your mind and through your soul, to pause. And if I could write a little commentary in Exodus 20, I'd put that word right here. Because you see, this truth changes everything. Think about, think about the Jewish people. They're out in the wilderness, right? They just got into the wilderness. They're not the 40 years in. That's going to happen eventually. They, they just got out in the wilderness. Think about what's happened in the months and years previous to this. Moses shows up and he shows up to the most powerful man in the world and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, <laughs> no. And then these 10 plagues happen. These 10 incredible, the, the, the Nile turns red and, and there's flies and locusts and all these crazy things happen. 
All these amazing things happen. And then finally, the Pharaoh says to him, he says, get, get out of here, just leave. Take whatever you want and leave. And the Jewish people, the Hebrew people at the time, is what they would have been called, they leave, they exit out of Israel. And they, they're running out of Egypt and they're running for their lives. They come up to the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's changed his mind. And the most powerful army in the world comes chasing after him. And they end up in this corner by the Red Sea, right? And they end up by this spot in the Red Sea and, and uh, uh, they, they begin to panic, right? Did you just lead us out of here so we could be killed by him? And then all of a sudden, God parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry ground. There was a... There was a, a debate happening. In real life, there was a debate happening between two guys about the historicity of Scripture. And, and one guy said to him, he said, you know, I, I, I don't think that the, the parting of the Red Sea happened. I think this was a little bit of a mistranslation and that there's a, a, a body of water near the Red Sea um, that's kind of a swampy marshland that, that we call the Reed Sea. And that's just a mistranslation of this. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it never gets more than a couple inches deep in the Reed Sea. And so it wouldn't be surprising for them to, like, find rocks to kind of hop across and say they walked across them on dry ground. And the other guy said to him, he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm fine if they parted on the Reed Sea. I think it's probably just as much miraculous that the most powerful army in the world drowned in two inches of water, right? So, so whatever happened in that moment, God delivered them in the most miraculous and amazing way. And then they end up on the other side. And you know what they're, where they end up on the other side? They end up in a desert. You know what's in a desert? Nothing. That's why it's called a desert. Nothing. There's nothing in the desert. So all these people come out into a desert. And, you know, it doesn't take long. I don't know about you, but if I miss lunch, I get a little hungry. It didn't take them weeks before God started providing manna for them. The day they got out there, God fed them. He fed them with food that they did not toil for. He fed them from food they didn't plant or have to work to harvest. He fed them and they get out in the wilderness and they end up out in the desert and God comes and speaks to them and he says, he says, he says uh, hey, hey, here's the most important thing you need to remember about what it means to be my people is that you are the people that I led out of Egypt. I did that. That you are the people that I parted the Red Sea and you walked through, I did that. That you are the people that go out and, and, and have nothing to eat, but I provide for you. I did that. Can you imagine in that moment, right? These people, all the, 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 the adrenaline pumping through their veins, and God reminds them of what he saved them from, from generational slavery and bondage at the face of the most powerful um, nation known to man at the time. God delivers them. I cannot imagine that in this moment right here, God says this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and that there wasn't just spontaneous celebration and rejoicing. Woo! He did that! Dude, did you guys see it? I saw one dude, he was like, he was like the last guy, and he's running, he's like, oh, I'm a beat, and then the wave came, a boosh! Right? Dude, I got up this morning, more manna! You remember the flies? <laughs> there were a lot of flies. Do you remember when God turned the Nile red? Do you remember? And the rejoicing and the celebration. You see, once the Jewish people understood this one statement, and in the moments where they were at their best, there are people who constantly came back to this truth. Remember, we're the people who brought out of Egypt. 
We're the people he freed from slavery. We're the people who he brought through the Red Sea. We're the people he fed in the wilderness that once you understand this truth, it changes everything else from the joy of it, from the rejoicing. If we could be a people who understood what God has saved us from, it would change everything else that he asks of us. It would change everything else. In Rooted, we, uh, we do Rooted this thing, it's 10 weeks, and we talk about a bunch of different rhythms, and one of the rhythms we talk about is the rhythm of celebration. In, in one of the writing deal things you read in Rooted, it says that, um, that, that we as the American society may be the worst people in all of human history when it comes to celebration. I mean, just think about it, right? Thanksgiving's coming up, what's Thanksgiving gonna look like for you, right? If you really love your family, I mean, like a lot, really love your family. You maybe spend five hours with them, right? And that's only if there's a really good football game on. A lot of you are introverts and you're like, I got 90 minutes and then I'm gonna be busy in the yard doing something because I just can't handle people, right? Christmas comes, a couple hours. Easter, Easter, like as, as, as followers of Jesus, Easter should be the biggest celebration we have all year. Just, just losing our mind rejoicing at what God's done. And what is it, a two-hour brunch? There are other cultures that will celebrate for days or weeks and sometimes even months. Months. Here's the deal. If we are to be the people who God calls us to be, if we are to grow in our faith and follow Jesus closer, I think that we need to stop trying to be better people and we need to become more joy-filled people. We need to become more joy-filled people. When the Israelites stood in the desert and were reminded what God had done for them, they gladly, from the joy of it, ventured to follow him into anything else he asked, even when the odds were incredible and crazy and ridiculous. When the man found the, 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 the treasure in the field, he, from the joy of it, gladly sold everything to buy that field. If you want to see God truly transform your heart, it will not come by you attempting to be a better person. It will come by you becoming a more joy-filled person. A more joy-filled person will be a changed person. A more joy-filled person will be a more obedient person. A more joy-filled person will be a person who the work of God transforms in their heart. A more joy-filled person will be a person who, like the nation of Israel, in their greatest moments, would walk into a, an unknown future, trusting a known God, knowing that even though what they saw looked amazing and incredible and inconquerable, that they had the God walking with them who brought them out of the land of Egypt who delivered them from slavery. So we have to ask a follow-up question. How do we become a more joy-filled people? Psalm 52, it says this. Boy of your salvation. Here's, here's the thing that I think that we all practice, we all need to do, is when you look at the nation of Israel and their path throughout the Old Testament, the times that they wandered and forgot and missed the point or rebelled or had idols were the moments that they forgot who God was and what he'd done for them. 
I bet that for you, the moments in your life where you've wandered or you've rejected or you've walked in, 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 in a lack of faith have been the times when you've forgotten all that God has already done for you. And so maybe, maybe one, in a minute, we're gonna sing a song together and maybe in the next couple minutes, you just like need to pull out your phone or pull out a piece of paper and you need to like write all the things that God saved you from. Maybe you need to go back in your mind and, and remember the place from which God saved you the trajectory of your life of where it was going. Maybe, maybe you need to um, write a prayer thanking God. Maybe you need to use a little bit of holy creativity and imagine what your life would look like apart from Jesus. That you would see the Egypt that he saved you from, the Red Seas that he's parted, the manna that he's provided for you, and that that would well up for you rejoicing. You see, here's, here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, for every single one of us, there was a moment where our life following Jesus was only marked by joy. There was no question of like, well, I mean, God, God kind of wants me to do that. I don't really want to do, like that's, I mean, that's like an hour of my week. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of work. I mean, I could do something different with that. Right? But there was a moment in your life where following Jesus was only joy where you were astounded by the goodness of God, that he would save you, that he would be graceful to you, that he'd be merciful to you. It's like the modern hymn says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So my question to you today. Have you forgotten? If there's joy lacking in your life, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten from which God saved you? From, have you forgotten from where God saved you? From, have you forgotten from what God saved you? Once your soul is fully engulfed in joy and celebration, we must also acknowledge that Psalm 52, 51 verse 12 doesn't end there. It says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey. You see, the guy in the field, he just didn't celebrate and freak out that he found a treasure out in the field. You know what he did after he found the treasure? He went and sold everything so he could have that treasure. There are things that God is calling you to do that require you to step out in faith and they may seem scary and they may seem uncertain and they, they may seem difficult and you may want to say, but Sean, you don't understand my story. You don't know what's going on. You don't understand the obstacles. But Jesus is the one who delivered you even from the hands of Egypt, the most powerful army in the known world. And he will be with you today. The Talmud, we mentioned earlier, the Jewish book on life and how to live, it, it has this beautiful passage that um, paints a little bit of a, a more vibrant picture of what's going on with the guy finding the treasure in the field because you see, finding a treasure in the field seems really unusual to us, doesn't it? I mean, anybody found a treasure in the field? I haven't, right? But in the ancient Near East, it wasn't that uncommon because um, in the absence of a secure banking system, uh, people would like a cave or a hole in the ground would be like their version of, bear, of, of shoving cash in a, in a, in a um, 
in a mattress, right? And so what would happen is people would bury their treasure, they'd put it in a cave, and then they would die because of the ancient Near East, and people died when they were like 12 years old, right? And they would just die. And, and you know, everyone would gather around, and dad would be dying, and people would be crying, and they'd be hugging him, and they'd say, oh, dad, we love you, dad, we love you. And then he'd die, and everyone would look around and go, Any, did dad tell anybody where the inheritance is? You know? No, just somewhere out in that field. Right? Or guys would go off to war and they'd have buried their treasure when they went off to war and then they died and they never come back. So it wasn't uncommon to find a treasure in a field. And, and you, you had to have a policy, you had to have a rule of what happens if you buy property, do you as, as suddenly own all the treasure in the field? Or if the treasure is assigned to someone else, but you buy the property, who gets the treasure? Are you getting the treasure knowing that there's no treasure on the field? You didn't pay for the treasure, so who gets the treasure, right? And so here, here's what it says. The Talmud says this, ownership of landed property is acquired by means of money, deed, and possession. It's pretty easy, Right? However, objects which are usually lifted, right, anything that you can pick up off the ground, can be acquired by hagbaha only. Here's the truth. The guy buys the field. He owns the field. But until he walks into the field and he picks up the treasure, it is not his. There are many of us who follow Jesus who bought the field, who bought the t-shirt, who showed up to church, who give, who serve. But until the moment we come out and we pick up the treasure, until we come out and pick up the promises of God and believe the st and live the truth of what God is doing and what he's declaring to us, until that moment it is not ours. But that is all it takes. Scripture says it this way, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So maybe today, maybe today you've been following Jesus for a long time. There are things in you that you've been wrestling with. There's been doubts, there's fear, there's uncertainty. There's things he's been calling you to and you haven't wanted to do them. And, and, and he's calling you again, he's calling you again. You're like, Jesus, can we just skip this step and move on to a different one? And he's calling you and he's calling you. The invitation to you today is from the joy of it by his great mercy and kindness that he would save even you, that while you were a sinner, while you were broken, while you were an enemy to God, God sent his son, that he who gave his own son for you, what more will he not give for you? It's to believe the truth of God who says, I am sufficient, I am good, I am able to redeem and restore all things and to believe and trust the promises of God. Maybe today, maybe today you've never made that decision. Maybe you've never even set foot on the field. Maybe you've never had any interest in God. The invitation to you to find joy in God is simply that symbol, that he who confesses with his lips and believes in a heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. All you have to do to find the goodness of God and the joy of following him is to believe and trust, to follow him. So whatever it looks like for you today, whatever you've been wrestling with, whatever you've been worried about, whatever you've been afraid of, whatever you've been bound up in, whatever you've been addicted to, whatever brokenness has continued to haunt you, the invitation today is to set it down in the field and instead to pick up the truth of God who is graceful and merciful and kind 
for that treasure is more valuable than all the world.